Christ Church, New Malden, Sunday the 12th of March 2023, 9.30 service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, Parables in Luke, The Lost Sheep, Coin and Son. Okay, well, I wonder if you've ever had that experience, as Anna passes me a glass of water, if you've ever had, thank you, Anna. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of being kept awake late at night by a party that is going on. Perhaps it's going on next door, perhaps it's going on fairly nearby, but music blaring out, loud voices and laughter late into the night, flashing lights and so on. It can be really, really annoying, can't it? Particularly if you're trying to sleep or if you've got young children that you're trying to get off to sleep. But, of course, in that sort of situation, a clash of perspectives is going on, isn't it? Those having the party have got, in their view, a really good reason to celebrate. Perhaps it's a special birthday, perhaps it's a wedding anniversary, perhaps it's a wedding itself. Those who don't know the reason for the party, on the other hand, or perhaps do know but don't care, can feel the precise opposite, can't they? And particularly if that party goes on and on and on and on late into the night, they could really resent it happening. And that's the sort of situation that we've got in the introduction to these three parables that we're looking at this morning. Jesus was doing one of the things he most commonly did. He was hanging out with those outside of respectable society and celebrating with them, particularly with tax collectors and sinners. Now, tax collectors, let's take them first. They're not popular today, really, are they? Let alone then. But at that time, they were just about the worst form of traitors. They were Jews that had chosen to work for the hated Romans. They were collaborators. And in most cases, probably every case, they had grown wealthy off the back of other people's oppression and misery. So that's the tax collectors who were the sinners. Well, the sinners, it's basically a euphemism for prostitutes. Those, once again, who were seen as making money in the worst possible way. And Jesus, well, he not only came to spend time with these people, he ate with them. The ultimate sign in that culture of acceptance and friendship. And it really annoyed those watching on, particularly the religious people, particularly the respectable people, those whose lives were marked out by a determination to obey God in every way possible, basically the Pharisees and teachers of the law. The whole thing about being holy, the Pharisees believed, was keeping separate. That's what the word meant. Keeping separate from those whose conduct was seen as so disloyal to God. And by spending time with such people and by eating with them, Jesus was, in the Pharisees' view, undermining God's holy law. He was giving the impression they thought that immoral behaviour didn't matter, and in the process, he was being deeply disloyal himself towards the God of Israel. So what do you do when you've got people trapped in a totally different mindset to you? When you've got people totally unable to step out of a narrative that they're fixed within. Well, Jesus' approach 
to challenging that was to tell parables. Jesus' approach was to tell these stories where people couldn't help listening and where they wouldn't know where the story was going until the point that was there to challenge them really jumped up and hit them straight between the eyes. We're in a series that's looking at Jesus' parables, parables in Luke's Gospel. And in chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables in quick succession. They're all meant to be read together. The parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Harriet read them to us earlier. And in each case, they present a completely different perspective on Jesus' celebration with tax collectors and sinners. Those celebrations that were so annoying and indeed scandalous to those Pharisees and teachers of the law. So, first of all, Jesus asked the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to imagine that they're a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Now, it's possible that some of those Pharisees and teachers of the law were also shepherds, but actually it's pretty unlikely. So Jesus is asking them to use a bit of imagination here and put themselves in someone else's situation. And Jesus paints a picture of an utterly committed shepherd doing everything possible to find that lost sheep. And when he finds that lost sheep showing utter joy at that finding of that lost sheep, and then having a massive, noisy celebration with his friends and neighbours as a result. Now, for people who knew their Bibles, which of course the Pharisees did, the resonance with Psalm 23 and its depiction of God being like a shepherd would have been obvious. And so, through this parable, those shepherds aren't just being asked to put themselves in the position of a shepherd, but in the position of God himself. And recognise that just as a shepherd utterly committed to one lost sheep was a rather alien concept to them, so God is similarly utterly committed to one lost person. This first parable, in other words, is confronting the Pharisees with how totally different they are from God. And that's reinforced by the punchline that occurs at the end of it. I tell you that in the same way, Jesus says, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. The real sting in the tail is that last bit, isn't it? The bit about repentance. Repentance means turning your life around. Jesus is making it clear that the reason those Pharisees don't get this understanding of God is because deep down they don't feel that there's anything that they really need to repent from. And the truth is that the only way that we learn to appreciate God's love for others is when we're conscious of having received that love ourselves. Very often people can get stuck with a rather stern and forbidding understanding of God. Sometimes because that's the sort of father or mother that we've had. Sometimes perhaps it's been someone who we loved and they loved us, but we found it difficult to please. Or we never quite had that closeness that we wanted. Now there can be plenty of other 
causes as well. But whatever the cause, it's an understanding of God as remote and forbidding that often then makes his grace and love to those who've messed up in their lives rather inexplicable to us. This parable is saying to those Pharisees, and perhaps to us, that if you respond in that way to people who've messed up finding Jesus or being found by him, if you, if you regard that as rather inexplicable and perhaps really annoying, then you really don't get yet God and his love. It's a real challenge to those Pharisees and perhaps to us as well. Saying if you don't get this, then you're not really understanding what God is all about. And Jesus follows this up with another rather alien picture, this time of a woman. Now, none of the Pharisees were women, and most of them were fairly wealthy. And so again, they're put in a rather alien position of someone looking from the outside in on this story of a woman who loses one of her ten silver coins. And she then turns the whole house upside down, sweeping and trying to find it, until that point where she suddenly finds that lost silver coin. And once again, she has a massive celebration. She gathers in her friends and her neighbours, and they celebrate. And like the shepherd calling in his friends and neighbours for a party after he finds his sheep, it's a deliberately over-the-top picture. Jesus is deliberately presenting something that is wildly over-the-top, where the Pharisees will think, that is rather strange. It's deliberately over the top in order to make its point about God. And Jesus says these words, very similar words to at the end of the first parable. In the same way I tell you, Jesus says, there's more rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. If you don't get this picture, Jesus is saying in the punchline, if it's completely alien to you Pharisees in pretty much every way, then in the same way, you don't really get God. The truth this chapter is revealing is that how we understand God is everything. And that's the way into the third story. It's the most famous part, the bit probably we already know, the story of the lost son. Now, when I was a kid, it was more commonly called the parable of the prodigal son or the wasteful son. And of course, it is the story of a younger son who asks for his share of his father's estate in advance of his death, quite a scandalous thing to do, and he promptly goes off and squanders the lot in wild living. And once again, it's a story where every single part of it would have been alien to those Pharisees with their strict code of behaviour. It's the very last thing that any of them would have done. And yet, because they knew their Bibles, they would have known as they listened to the story that it had quite a lot of resonance with the stories throughout the Old Testament of God's people, normally through their disobedience, going away and then coming back again. So because they knew their Bibles, they would recognize its resonance with the story of Jacob, the story of David, who has to flee Jerusalem for a time. And eventually, the story of the entire nation of Israel through the exile, people being taken away from their land because of disobedience, going off into exile before coming back 
again to be restored by God. So while they wouldn't have been able to relate to that younger son in any obvious sense, these resonances with the story of Israel would have been enough to make the Pharisees think and perhaps feel slightly uncomfortable. And this discomfort would have increased with the depiction of the father. The younger son in the story, having squandered his wealth in that far-off country, is in desperate straits, isn't he? He's even tempted to fill himself with the food of the unclean pigs that he's tending. So he resolves to return home. And he resolves to return home and offer himself to his father as a hired servant. But his father, seeing him in the distance, comes rushing out to him. He throws his arms around him, he kisses him, and he basically treats him like royalty. And he throws a massive party to celebrate his return. And once again, it's presenting those Pharisees with an utterly alien picture of God. See, the Pharisees' God was a God who demanded obedience and a God who, if you failed, was angry with you. There might be a way back, but it was a long and arduous path of dutiful service. But the God of this parable is totally different, isn't he? He's a God of relationship, a God who allows us the freedom to make our own decisions, good and bad, because he wants a relationship of love with us. The God of this parable is one who's utterly grieved when we take the wrong decisions, of course, but not because of some arbitrary set of standards that he has, but because of the way that those wrong decisions damage us. But like the Good Shepherd and the woman with the ten silver coins and the Good Father in this final parable, he's a God who's constantly looking for us and ready to throw the most enormous party when we return to him. Not welcoming us back as a servant, but as a dearly loved daughter or son. But the question is, is that our picture of God? Is the way that God is presented in these parables the way that we tend to see him? Very often it can be a picture that we're rather resistant to because it's one that says that none of our achievement or our status can make any difference because our standing before God is dependent entirely on his love. It's totally dependent upon his grace. That's why people whose lives have contained terrible disasters within them can sometimes appreciate God's grace more than those whose lives have remained respectable. Now, of course, the reality is that none of us are respectable, really, are we? None of us are righteous through our own actions, our own achievements. But if we're stuck in that way of thinking, and particularly if we're stuck in presenting that image out to others, if we're really utterly committed to presenting uh, an outward image of sort of achievement and respectability and so on, then we will find it difficult, as those Pharisees did, to recognise, let alone reflect in our own lives, God's wonderful grace. 
And having presented a series of alien figures to those Pharisees and teachers of the law, as a way of bringing home to them how little they understand God, Jesus very suddenly, and at the tail end of this chapter of parables, then reveals someone who is just like them. This is the sting in the tail. This is the part of the story that now they're listening, suddenly jumps up and hits them straight between the eyes. Because the prodigal or wasteful son has an older brother, doesn't he? An older brother who has stayed at home with his father. And hearing the noise from the house, he comes in from working in the fields, and he asks a servant of his father what's happening. And he's told about his brother's return and how his father has killed the fattened calf to celebrate his brother's return. And just like those Pharisees at the start of the chapter, he's really annoyed, isn't he? In fact, he's furious. And he refuses to go into the house to be with his father and his brother and those celebrating his return. And so the father comes out of the house to plead with him. And the older son speaks about all those years that he's worked for his father and not received anything back in return while his dreadful younger brother has come home to a rapturous celebration and welcome. Now, it's quite common over the years to hear people expressing their sympathy with the older brother, especially if they are an older brother or sister who's had a wayward younger sibling. Put up your hand if you come into that category. Claire raised her hand then, but I don't think she does. But if that's our response, if our response is an intrinsic sympathy for that older brother, it might be a sign that actually we need to understand God's grace quite a bit more. Because the truth, when we examine that older son's reaction, is that his response shows everything about where his heart is. That older son's response shows that all those years that he'd served his father... They weren't really motivated by love so much as what he hoped and probably expected to get out of that service. That's why he's utterly resentful of the treatment that his brother received. If that older brother had truly loved his father and had stayed with him out of love, he wouldn't have expected anything back in return for that and he wouldn't have been filled with resentment when he saw his younger brother being welcomed home. And if we've truly received God's grace, then we welcome it when we see it being received by others. And furthermore, when we've received God's grace, we're able to show it ourselves. When we've received God's grace, God's love, God's forgiveness, and we really know that that is something tremendously precious and wonderful, then it's something that we can display towards others and we can welcome when we see them receiving it. You see, the irony, the huge irony at the end of this parable is that the younger son who ran away is now in the house with his father, isn't he? While the elder brother is outside of the house and refusing to come in. And the reason why he's refusing to come in is because he's full of resentment at someone else who's made it into that house. He doesn't want his younger brother to be there. And that, this parable, is basically saying to the Pharisees and teachers of the law, 
is precisely where they now stand, outside the house, refusing to come in. And the parable ends with us uncertain about the ending, doesn't it? When you see films and uh, stuff where uh, it's depicted, the older son sometimes will shrug his shoulders and come into the house, which is a nice ending, but we don't know that it ends that way. It's deliberately left uncertain. Why? Because it's the choice that the parable is making to us. When we witness God's grace happening to unlikely people, are we happy to be in the house alongside them? Or are we so resentful about that happening, we'd rather stand outside the house and not be any part of it? The challenge to us as a church, particularly the type of church that we're trying to be, is considerable. Particularly if, like me, you've been a Christian or a churchgoer for some time, in my case, the whole of my life. It's quite a challenge. It's essentially the same challenge as in that famous story of Jonah in the Old Testament. Do we want our God to be a God of grace? Do we want our God to be a God who welcomes sinners? Do we want our God to be a God who welcomes people who've totally messed up and wants to shower them with his grace? Now, in theory, I think we'd all say yes to that question. But the acid test of whether we really believe this is our response, our reaction when we see that grace occurring. One of the things we're currently trying to do at Christchurch really quite strongly is to welcome as many people as possible with God's love. Now, most obviously through our lunch club grapevine, but also our four cinema clubs, our toddler groups, but also our two morning services, particularly, though not exclusively, here at 9.30. We also have new people joining at 11 o'clock, which is great. Now, at Grapevine, our lunch club, we have a prayer time after the lunch, which around 12 to 14 people regularly come to. And a number have taken to coming to the 11 o'clock service before Grapevine each month. God's grace is having a wonderful impact upon those people. They know they're loved, they know they're valued. Same, I hope, is happening to other people through our services here and other groups. And the challenge for those of us who have been here longer is to welcome all of those people with the love that reflects God's love for them. People can experience God's love independently of any Christian showing that love, but boy does it help when Christians show that love to people and embody the way that God sees them. That is the way people overwhelmingly join churches and become part of those communities. When the people who've been there for a while welcome them and do the equivalent of the Father in that last parable. We don't necessarily have to throw our arms around them and kiss them, but you know what I mean. Now, if we struggle with that, if we're uncomfortable with the whole idea of it, perhaps if we even resent the fact that our church is now becoming so dominated by these Johnny-come-latelys, I don't think there is too much of that attitude here, I've got to say. But if there's any of that then it probably is, well, I think it certainly is an indication that we need to understand more about God's grace and we need to receive more of that grace 
than we currently are doing. It's quite a challenge to us. It's the challenge that I think comes before any churches. It's why churches get stuck. Churches can very easily become a club and a very comfortable place for a certain group of like-minded people, normally from broadly the same culture. It's a tough thing when a church seeks to totally display God's grace to those outside or currently outside of its membership. Involves all sorts of decisions about trying to strip out cultural things that are really nothing to do with God but can put people off coming. But to put it more positively, when a church is really working powerfully as it should be, it's when every single member of that church has an eye to the people who are outside of that community and wants to embody that welcome and that grace that comes from God. And it's contagious. People don't expect it to happen. People are really genuinely surprised when they are welcomed rapturously and treated like the younger son in that parable when the fattened calf is uh, quite literally killed at Grapevine in the kitchen for those people. We don't quite do that, but you know what I mean. But there's a last verse in this parable which can speak very powerfully to us with this challenge. It shows this parable isn't just about challenge, it's about affirmation as well. It's not just about saying to all those of us who've been Christians for ages, come on, pull yourself together, respond to this challenge. It's affirmation as well. It's a message that God deeply, deeply values and loves every single one of us. So if you've been coming to church for donkey's years like me, and you see this challenge and you recognize that it's being made to us and that we really do need to be vessels of God's grace and God's love and we need to be powerfully committed to that, hear these words of affirmation as well, because they're for you. My son, my daughter, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Hopefully the way this story ends, although it is a made-up story, but is of that older son recognizing how deeply loved he is by his father and then being motivated to display that grace, that forgiveness, that love himself. Because that's what we're called to. We're called to recognize it's the reason we have that confession near the start of the service. We are forgiven people. It's a wonderful thing. The God of utter grace has accepted us and found us and incorporated us into his family. But not so we can then draw up the drawbridge so that we can then be missionaries of God's grace to as many people as possible. People in our work situation, people in our street, people who uh, come into this church uh, through whatever means. It's a wonderful calling, but it all hinges on the way that we see God. Do we see God in the way that these parables are presenting God to us? A God of total commitment to seeking the lost. A God of utter joy when people who've been far away from him come back. That's the vision of God that we need to both affirm us and help us to fully recognize the grace that we've received and crucially 
to be able to recognise that grace when it happens elsewhere and to be committed to being part of it. Let's pray for a moment. Father God, we ask that this vision of you as a God of utter grace, utter forgiveness, an abundance of love, would be one that we can so recognise and accept that we live by those truths. We ask, Lord God, that you would help us to be people that embody your grace. And we know this is quite a challenge, particularly if we've been hurt or damaged or not had many examples of grace presented to us in our lives. Perhaps particularly if we've had rather harsh uh, experiences from our upbringing. Perhaps particularly if we've had an experience where we felt we had to earn love and acceptance. Particularly if that's the case, Lord God, would you reveal to us more fully your utter love and grace so that that can take hold of us, so it can release us from fears and insecurities that result in destructive attitudes towards others. And would you help us to just be overflowing with your grace towards as many people as possible so they're drawn further towards you and your healing love. We pray for every single part of Christchurch where we're trying to do this. We thank you for Grapevine, for all those people who come and cook and work hard to welcome people who come and seek to embody your grace. We pray that will continue. We ask that it would happen at our various film clubs as well our toddler groups, at Men Behaving Downly, and so on. Father God, we know that we need your help to do this. So would you use us to be vessels of your powerful grace? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.